Uh, welcome to Wheaton College's Center for Faith and Innovation podcast. The center's mission is to foster the integration of marketplace and ministry and to develop marketplace leaders. My name is Alec Hill. I'll be your host today. Uh, I'm the former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. And I'm really pleased our guest today is Roger Parrott. Uh, Roger is the uh, served as president at Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi for a whopping 27 years. That's a really long tenure. Uh, this last year, Education Magazine named him as one of America's top uh, most visionary educators. What quite an honor. And uh, being a college president seems to run in his blood as both his father uh, and his grandfather served in that post as well. Uh, we're going to discuss his newest book, which is entitled Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning, Start Getting Results. Uh, and uh, the former president of World Vision, Rich Stern, calls it an incredibly important book. So uh, welcome, Roger. And I'm gonna, we're just going to jump right in here. Uh, what's the big idea of your book? Well, the, the big idea is that planning is uh, crippling us. We are settling for what we assume is the best we can envision, and we're missing God's best in our lives because we're so addicted to this model of planning. And um, and uh, it doesn't mean that God doesn't use us in good ways and good things don't come from it, but I think we are minimizing really what God could do in our lives if we would let go of long-range planning and trust Him for future destinations rather than trying to describe those ourselves and then set objectives to get to predetermined goals. And so that's really the idea. And I think we live in a culture, uh, both within the church and within um, within the business community, where planning has become our, our, uh, our structure. It's become our security blanket, but it's also become the, the obstacle that's keeping us, especially those of us who are following after God's best from finding really the wonderful things God could do in our lives if we get out of the way just a little bit and let him lead instead of us trying to lead. So, Roger, is it just long-term planning that you have a problem with or, or short-term planning? Is what, you, do, you do plan, right? I, mean, you, I do plan. You, you, you write Absolutely. to-do lists. You have things you have to do. So, <laughs> so, is, so is it just the particular long-term that problem is a problem for you or, or medium-term? How would you describe that? Yeah, it's it's the long term. The the dest I call it destination planning, and uh, you know most ministries, organizations, businesses do it. In five years, we're going to have so many new uh, 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 students for a university. We're going to add so many programs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then we work back to set objectives. How do we get there? I'm saying let go of that. Plan extremely well what we know God's given us to do. So on my campus, we know we're going to teach English. We know we're going to feed students on the dining commons. We know we're going to play football. Let's plan those things extremely well. But let's trust God for what the future destinations might be rather than trying to project those. And and I did I did a a um, a exercise with my board after we were a number of years into this and and I came to them at this point they knew we didn't do planning so they were they were settled on the idea of no long range planning yes we do operational planning we do it very well but um, so I came to them and I said I passed out a piece of paper that said five year plan and it had 72 goals on that plan and the five major goals were uh, uh, expand the enrollment 43 percent. 
uh, raised $21 million in new gifts, which for us was a lot of money. Built $31 million of new facilities, which was gigantic for us. Uh, seven new undergraduate programs, eight new graduate programs. And as we went through that list, the older members kind of figured out what I was doing and realized that was what we did the previous five years, not what we done, were planning to do the next five years. Now, the difference is if previously, five years before, I brought that same list to our board and gone through that list, we would have cut it down by two-thirds to what we knew we could do rather than in this way not having a plan. We trusted God to do so much more than we thought possible. Now, I wrote about that in the book, and I decided now that the book came out, I need to do it again with my board, and we just did it a few weeks ago, and the list was even more dramatic. It was a lot of fun to look back to see what God had done when we didn't have a plan and got out of the way and let him lead. But yes, operationally, we plan. If God's entrusted something to us, we want to get the very most out of it, and we plan that in great detail. So it seems to me that long-term planning to you is not just a technical problem, it's a theological problem. It it really is. It it comes down to where do you put your trust? And, uh, you know, we all say we trust God and God's sovereign and God will lead, but we we don't really implement that when it comes to um, leadership of of ministries. And, And part of that is we've got this addiction to planning, and it's expected of us to do this planning. So we've got to not just believe it, we've got to help embrace it and then help train others to understand this is following the very best of God's plan to let go of this. But I, I think, you know, boards expect planning. They all work in the business community where they see plans and they expect plans to come. So they're they're kind of in that world. You know, our donors expect, well, where are you going to be in five years from now? And And my answer to that always when I'm asked is, I don't know, but I do know that the best plan we could come up with is pale in comparison to the plan that God has to us. So so I think that there's a lot of assumptions built into this model of planning that have to be broken up, but they all come down to a theology of trust. So I'm just reflecting on the book of James where he says, you know, you plan and you're going to do this tomorrow and you're going to, you know, you're going to be in this city and you're going to do this and that. And uh, James calls that arrogance. So you're, you're, is it, have you ever thought of that passage in light of your book? I have not. That is terrific. I've, I thought many times about the, the ministry of Jesus and how often he was headed one direction and something came and pulled him a different direction. And those were the opportunities of ministry that came. And he always responded to those opportunities. He didn't say, well, we're planning to go there, so we've got to go, and I can't respond to, to what you need. He always interrupted. And I, and I think so. Uh, that's, a, that's a great passage because it really um, comes down to the core of what ministry should be. And that's where our most important opportunity moments of ministry come is when we capture these opportunities that God brings that we could never design. Uh, well, Roger, I just confess, in my 14 years with InterVarsity, I'm the classic long-term strategic planning guy. So this is a fun interview for me because I'm, uh, I'm, there's a little chafing going on inside of me, as I'm sure there are with some other listeners about what you're saying, but I find it fascinating. You use the metaphor, metaphor of sailboats and motorboats. Can you unpack that? Yeah, I sure can. And, and I will, I will 
testify with you to that addiction to planning. I did it for years, too. I appointed the Blue Ribbon Committees. I sent them off to work for 18 months. We put out the brochure and and with the goals laid out in it all beautifully. And you always make sure you put a picture of whoever's most against the plan in the brochure. So they'll go along with it. I did all that. But uh, when we got rid of planning, and, and it came through really an opportunity that was unusual to me in that we, when I first came to Bellhaven, were in trouble with the Crediting Association about planning. And uh, I called Tom Quartz, who was the president of Samford University at that time, who was happened to also be chair of the accrediting board for the Southeast region. And I said, would you help me understand what they're looking for? And he said, I'll not only help you, I'll come over and spend a day with you. And he did. And he came and he sat in, in, in on our campus and sat in my conference room. I'll never forget the moment. And he brought with him his vice president for planning. And he said in front of his vice president for planning, after we'd worked through all this stuff, he said, you know, I don't think the things that were really significant for my university were ever planned. They were just opportunities that came along. And it was a, like a light switch for me, and it changed my outlook. And that's when I started to get rid of planning and started to cast it off. Well, as I did, it made everybody nervous. They all got scared. If we don't have a plan, what are we going to do? Do you not know where you're going? You're the leader. You're supposed to know where we're going. And so I, I tried to develop a, a metaphor that helped the campus understand what I meant by it. And that was this idea of a sailboat that's prepared to catch the wind of God and go wherever God's wind takes us, rather than a powerboat that ignores the wind, but goes where we assume God wants us to go. And in the Christian church, we've gotten pretty good at building some impressive powerboats that look great and they're are strong and they're impressive, but they really can't ignore the wind of God. And they can go where they want to go just by the strength of our organization. And so that image helped our campus and helped me to understand this unique distinction of, of trusting God for this future. And, and when you break down, and I did in the book a lot of breakdown between powerboats and sailboats and how the difference is, but it comes down to trust. It comes down to focus. If you're in a powerboat, you just focus on the motor. If you're in a sailboat, you've got to listen to the to the wind and the water and the sail and, and see how it's all going. Your, your focus is up. It's about preparation. Uh, powerboat, you jump in and go. Uh, sailboat, you've got to be prepared for when that wind does come. And on and on and on. Uh, about seven characteristics of the uniqueness of sailors as those who are trusting God for the future rather than trying to control this plan and go where we assume God wants us to go. Now, Roger, you've been president a long time, 27 years, and uh, your sense of listening to the Holy Spirit, uh, timing, intuition, have you had years to mature? Uh, is there any danger of your advice for a new president? So someone just coming into the role, and you say, follow me. <laughs> but, but, but t- talk a bit about your sort of history with this over the 27 years. But what advice would you give to the young leader? Well, I would say don't stand up and say, I'm not going to do planning starting tomorrow uh, because I read this book, because you're going to get fired if you do. <laughs> so thank, you thank know, you. Um, <laughs> it's a process. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, um, 
it's a, it's a hard jolt if you just try to jump into it. And so, so in fact, I wrote a little story in the book, kind of a, a fictitious scenario about a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who always did the plan and always introduced at the annual meeting and they laid out the graphs and charts and it was all going to be great. And of course, every year it never comes up to standard. And those of us who have done long range planning, it rarely comes up to standard of what we even expect of that. And so I wrote this story about him and, and how he gave this presentation. He said, this year is going to be different. We're, I'm not announcing a plan. We're just going to trust God for wherever he leads this company. We may have more customers. We may have fewer. We may have new products. We may have the same ones, or we may let some go. We're going to just trust God for new markets or st- serve well the markets we have. And I said in the scenario within Within minutes of the first tweets going out, the stock went in the tank. Uh, the senior leadership quit by the end of the day, and he was fired uh, at the end of the days. And, you know, that's what's going to happen. So this is a process. And so I read a lot in the book about the process because it's about changing co- corporate culture. It's about embracing this idea of trusting God for this future and helping everyone to see where they fit in that scenario. And and that's really the joy of, of the leadership of this. You're not tied down to this structure of this model of planning, but you're really freeing people to find God's best in their life, to fulfill their calling. And I tell you, Alec, it's the single best decision I've ever made in my life was to let go of planning. And um, we've not only done more, but I've been uh, relaxed and and enjoying watching God work from the front row. So, so what year did you make the the switch? Did you let go of the the, the net disappear from beneath you, so to speak, of, of long term? Two thousand two, two thousand three. And how many? So years, how many right years? Had, twenty years. So, how many years? How many years? Right at twenty years, we've been doing this. Yeah. Right. So you, it's about your seventh or eighth year you yeah. made the switch, and uh, uh, so let's talk about your inside. Uh, spirituality. So um, you you come out of this sort of control and plan model, and you move to this Holy Spirit model. What did that do for you spiritually, personally? Well, I'll tell you, the, the great things that happen, you know you couldn't do them. You know they're from the Lord. And uh, so it gives you this wonderful confidence that God really does own and lead Bellhaven University, not me. I happen to be in that corner office doing the things I do. But God's in charge of this. And whether that's wonderful or whether that's through challenging times. So, you know, it's not just all the great successes, but it's also when the hurricane hit us. It's also when COVID came and other kinds of, of challenges came. I have the same confidence, a little harder to emotionally feel that same confidence. You have to work a little more at it, but uh, you have that same confidence. God is in charge. So I think it has really deepened a, a level of trust I never imagined I would have to, to, to know that God is caring for this, and I am privileged to just walk alongside and watch and, and help make it happen, not to make it happen. Roger, you may have heard this story, and I assume it's not true, it's made up, but but two pastors show up at a corner lot that's for sale, 
And the one pastor who's Pentecostal asked the Presbyterian pastor, how did you get here? He said, well, we hired a survey. We, we, we did a, uh, uh, we evaluated all the, the markets. We, we interviewed people in the neighborhood and this seems to be the place. And so then the Presbyterian says to the Pentecostals, how did you come here? He said, I was driving down the freeway and the Holy Spirit said, get off and take a left. <laughs> so I I waver I waver between my Presbyterian side and my Pentecostal yeah. side. Yeah. Well, and it, it is hard because again, so many people expect this of it, and um, you know I've been doing it long enough now. My campus doesn't expect a plan, but in those early years, it was hard because they were they felt unsure, and I had to find ways to help give reassurance to show that yes. That planning, although it shows a lot of activity, most often it's empty productivity. And, um, and in fact, not only that, we miss the opportunities because we can't move fast enough because we're tied to the planning model. And, um, you know, I, I write in the book a, a, a chapter on speed wins because that's part of the problem of planning. It is so slow that the opportunities are gone by the time you ever get around to it, uh, to make a decision. Is there any middle ground between long-term planning and opportunity, leading with opportunity? I mean, is there anything in the middle or, or you just choose one or the other? Well, you know, when I first started this, I would explain it and I'd talk to the board or talk to the faculty about it and say how we're going to trust God and we believe he's leading and we're going to let go of this, et cetera, et cetera. And they'd come up after as they go, that's, that's really great. And that is wonderful. But but what's the plan B? If this doesn't work, what are we really going to do? And, you know, I got to the point, I said, there's no plan B. This is the plan to not have a plan. And there is no plan B. So, no, I think you, there is a point. You have to step off the cliff and you've got to let go of it. Now, again, you don't do that overnight. You're going to get fired. you got to do it with a building, a culture, and a core process that allows those things to happen. But when you change that culture, that's when you can be responsive to these opportunities. I had one uh, here a a few weeks ago from um, uh, pretty remarkable from the number one um, rated university in China. We've had an MBA in China for about four years. And the number one rated uh, institution in China was trying to do a DBA, Doctor of Business Administration, with one of the flagship universities of America. They'd been working on it for two years, and the university couldn't make a decision, couldn't act, couldn't move. He heard about what we were doing. He checked us out very thoroughly. They called. We made a contact. Within about three or four weeks, we had the deal put together, and we enrolled the first students uh, about five weeks after the first phone call. And we have a wonderful DBA with these folks while the flagship's still trying to make a decision because they're stuck in their planning process. Now, I couldn't do that if I didn't have a core of a culture that understood that and understood, yes, we do move fast and we we have a spirit of responding to these things in a way where we have everybody put their light on it and then we make a decision and we move. But um, but that is, again, the joy of this when you can build the momentum to show it. And you start small, you build up, but I think any ministry can do it if you really will have the courage to take a step forward, and it is wonderful. 
Well, I'll tell you, most universities aren't known for being nimble, right? That's, that's, so you put long-term strategic planning and the university culture on top of it, yeah. and that's a recipe for molasses and, uh, and slowness. Um, so I wanted to ask you, have other people followed your example? I mean, are you the Pied Piper of this new model and other people are singing your accolades and, and, or is this kind of, you're waiting to see if other people will follow? <laughs> well, it's a little of both. I, I had a, I had an email from a college president friend who had had gotten the book. He said, "I got your book and I started reading it last night, and I stayed up all night and read it because this is what I've been doing, but I always felt guilty for it, and this is what I really wanted to do, and now I've got." And I've had a number of people say, now I've got language for what I've been trying to do. And so some are doing that. Some are saying, you know, this is where we need to go. We're stuck in a rut. We're not moving. Nothing's happening. We're making these plans, but nothing ever changes. How do we get out of this? And they're willing to do something different. And of course, everybody who had a plan two and a half years ago, three years ago, doesn't have a plan today because nobody had COVID in their plan. Not one person. But look at how Without a plan, we were able to innovate. Churches could have ministry without people in the pew. Uh, restaurants could serve without without their doors being open. Presidential inaugurations could happen without a crowd. We innovated like crazy during COVID uh, because we didn't have a plan. And if we keep that same spirit going forward and not be tied down to this planning, the innovation comes, the creativity comes. Again, when we're called by mission, we know exactly what we want to do. We find these ways to fulfill it that are, are hidden from us because the planning process so dominates the landscape. Let's talk about mission drift because you just kind of raised this. Intuitively to me, your methodology could lead to mission drift because, and you're going to argue counter, I know, so I'm going to set this up um, <laughs> because because you're, you're you're responding to opportunities as they come, and an opportunity may come where there's a fifty million dollar donation to have a new school of horticulture, which has nothing to do with the mission of your university. So, um, whereas strategic planning theoretically flows from mission, and you have your, in a sense, you have to stick within the boundaries. So, how does opportunity leading like this? Um, how does that not lead to mission drift? Well, I think it's critical, Alec. You really hit on the core of it. You've got it. You've got to know your mission inside and out, and you've got to know um, not just your mission, but your gifting, uh, uh, your 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 mission, your gifting, and your capacity. If you look at those three things, and they've all got to align when a new opportunity comes. So when this opportunity for China for this DBA came, I already had a Chinese program. I already have Mandarin speaking faculty. I already had things that lined up with that, and we knew we were good at it, and so it fit with us because we already felt the calling to serve in China. So it fit very well. But it's very easy to look at things that look a lot like what we do and start to drift into another lane. And and, uh, I wrote a chapter in a book called Stay in Your Lane because you've got to know what your mission is and stay true to that unique mission of what you're gifted to do and where your position is to work and and what your capacity is. Sometimes you don't have the capacity to do it or you don't have the right people uh, to, to make these things happen. But, you know, mission is so critical. I, I wrote in the book kind of 15 really tough questions about mission that we need to be asking ourselves. They're, they're value propositions. They're, they're not the what, when, where, and 
who of what we do, it's the why of what we do. And if we haven't got that why clear, um, we're always going to be chasing after the next thing that might unlock the future. So we've got to stay with that. But, but mission drift to me is never about a single decision. Mission drift is 10,000 decisions quietly made that never uh, were intended. And mission really gets lived out in the day-to-day of life, not in documents. We can write documents. We can write planning documents. We can write mission statements. If it doesn't get lived out day-to-day, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So our mission really is evaluated by while we're interacting with, with each other, what we're, how we um, interact with our public, et cetera. Those kinds of things are the core of our mission. We've got to understand. So, so looking back over the last 20 years as you've been using this model, uh, have you made any mistakes in this regard where you've, you've taken an opportunity and later realized that it was peripheral to your mission? Yeah, we have. And, um, and um, when we have, thankfully, we've been able to back up. And, um, you know, and I think the other thing about opportunities is you take some and they all don't work out. I've had many that we've started and we thought were a fit and you get far into them and they don't work out. But part of the challenge of this is if you wait till you plan every scenario, every contingency, you never get started. And, and, and that's the difference. So, so let's take, let's go back to the example of this program in China. One of the big issues in that initial discussion was they wanted their students to take two courses at a time. We felt one course at a time in a DBA program was enough. Um, in our MBA, we allow them to take two at a time because the Chinese students are very diligent. They work extremely hard, uh, much different from American students. So we could have stopped at that point, not done the deal and said, we've got to work this out. We've got to come to a conclusion on this. We've got to study this. We've got to analyze how students learn, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, let's just go ahead. Let's get the commitment done, and then we'll get into it. And as we started to work through it, before we even offered the first class, the Chinese leaders came back and said, you know, we've studied the curriculum. This should be one class at a time, and we do it that way. So, you know, it's it's a process of really getting into something, working out the details after you get in rather than as you before you get in, which is the planning model, but then realizing sometimes it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work and you hit a roadblock that God's trying to pull you away from, back up. And what I've always found is our mistakes, the things that didn't work, God was preparing us for something else where we could use all that later on. All right. That's really good. Do you have a negative example of something that actually didn't just sort of adjust like the Chinese program, but we actually ended it and you went, we missed it. Um, boy, and just missed it straight up. I'm not sure I got a great example of that one because again, we're so careful on mission. We know what fits and what doesn't. Now we have stopped stuff. I mean, we were known for many years for our ingenuity in going to branch campuses. We had 11 branch campuses across the Southeast and that market began to dry up and COVID killed that market off. And I've closed all 11 of those branch campuses. Well, that was one of our distinctives and our uniquenesses. Um, but you know, the church is not very good at stopping stuff sometimes. And, uh, Um, And we've got to have the courage to stop and say, that was for a time. That was for a moment. Uh, We've got a 25-year run out of it. We're pretty happy. But it's not forever. 
and nothing we do is forever. Um, you think, you know, I, one, of the, one of the examples I wrote in my book, and it shocked my wife a little bit when she read it, and she said, you're so right, and we kind of celebrated a little bit. I said, someday there's going to be a president of Bellevue University who's going to stand and watch a bulldozer push over a building that I worked so hard to build and raised all the money and felt like we had finally broken through to get that. And their celebration day is going to be the day that building comes down. Nothing's forever. And we've got to be in the moment of what God wants us to do right now, not trying to build legacies for uh, what is beyond our control. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, Roger, uh, you encourage leaders to emulate baseball managers, and I'm a baseball fan, go Mariners, um, but not football coaches. What, is, what, what does that mean? Yeah, my, my football coach uh, kind of was concerned when I tested that idea on him, but I really do. I think there's a big difference between kind of the approach to baseball managers and to to football coaches that I kind of like. And, um, you know, a football coach, and we've, we've, we've let them become kind of our model of what a leader should be. And so whether it's Tony Dungy or Nick Saban or whomever the football coach is, you know, those are the ones who come to our big events and we kind of hold them up as the ideal leaders. But in their world, I think it doesn't transform, it doesn't, translate to our world of ministry. Um, football is about control and it's about preciseness. It's about time constraints. It's about a team synchronization where nobody ever makes a mistake. It's about a predetermined plan and it's about winning every game. You can't win a national championship in America if you lose more than one game. It's not going to happen. Uh, baseball, on the other hand, rewards anticipation it's reactionary to what's happening. It's about personal ingenuity. All nine of those players are kind of playing their own very different game. It's about flexibility. It's about interwoven purposes um, rather than individual, um, but there's still an individualism in it. And and you can lose about 30% of your games and world, win the World Series. Well, 40%, and, uh, so, 40%, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. even more. Yeah. So, you know. But, but here's one thing I've noticed in kind of studying this analogy between football coaches and baseball coaches. When you watch a game on TV and the pressure's on, the camera always goes to the coach in a football game. In a baseball game, when the pressure's on, the camera goes to the hitter or the pitcher or the, some, some player. And in, in leadership, that's what we've got to do. We need to get the camera off of us. All of us get enough applause. We get enough camera. We get enough spotlight. We've got to turn it on to the people who are doing this job every single day on the front lines of our ministry. And I think in equipping each of those players on that baseball team like a, a good manager can, then they can sit back in the dugout and look fairly relaxed while this thing's going on uh, as the people who have been prepared go out and do it. So let's talk about this issue of control and the soul of the leader. Um, I found that having to control everything is exhausting. Um, and, and, and also it creates ulcers. It creates a sense of failure. Uh, what you're describing sounds liberating. Uh, also a little scary. Uh, you, you, so how, describe your journey from being a controlling first in the first five years president to this more open-handed uh, baseball managing president now. Yeah, it, it was a process and a journey. And I think some maturity and experience helps uh, being a second 
you know, this is my second presidency, so, and that always helps too. You get all kind of the uh, the uh, uh, the trappings of uh, of leadership out of the way the first time around, and your ego gets out of the way in a better way. But yeah, I, I think it is letting go. I, I recently read a book about the uh, about the uh, chief of staffs for the last the ten or so presidents. Every chief of staff started with this idea they were going to be the spoke of the wheel. Everything was going to come to them, and the one thing they all had in common is everybody said, you can't do it. It won't work. And uh, everybody tries it. Everybody wants that level of control and thinks they have to do that. But at in, in the long run, you'll either become autocratic and you'll become harsh and you'll become difficult or you, um, you uh, uh, will just exhaust yourself with it and, and really overwhelm yourself with it. Uh, what I try to do is is to empower people and equip them to learn how to lead in their arena. And sometimes my wife will say, you know, why did you have them do it? You could have done it so much better. And I said, well, two reasons. One is that when I was that age, somebody let me do it and learn how to do it. And I'm very appreciative of that. And I'm going to let somebody else learn how to do it. And secondly, I can't do it all. So I'd rather they hit their 85% than me hit the 95%. We've at least got to get everybody going. So it's equipping people and and really enjoying that discipleship uh, of equipping key leaders. And I've probably got a dozen people on my campus that I really lean on to trust them to do that. And then it's being able to stand back and look at the more interconnected, complicated things that impact the whole and how to handle that. And one of the principles I live by is I don't do anything somebody else could do. So if somebody else on my campus could do it, I try not to do it. And uh, now that doesn't mean I don't want to do it. There are things I love to do and I want to get involved. But um, but I try to stay back and, and keep that perspective. If somebody can do it, there's not a reason for me to do it. And it's amazing how capable people can be. But, yeah, they have to learn and, and they have to have a lot of ex- experiences and they have to have a lot of mistakes. But mistakes are a good thing. They're not a bad thing. We, we grow and we learn through mistakes and we experiment and we find good things through mistakes as well. Roger, what I like what you're saying is it's if you, the correction to over control is not zero control. Right. It's a it's appropriate control. And that's why your baseball manager metaphor really works for me, because baseball managers do move players around. They, you know, they do they, they do control, but it's an appropriate level of control. And and using the Genesis term of dominion, they, they do exercise the authority. But it's not this sense of having to move all the pieces on the chessboard and could, and and it's it, we're just not we're not omniscient omniscient enough to, to do that well. Yeah, no, no, we're not. And uh, so I, I try work. I work really hard to try to not control because I, I want to. I, I tend to. That's kind of my nature. I want to. I try not to. But I am very aware of everything that's going on. And uh, mm-hmm. so I kind of know what's happening. It's pretty hard to surprise me that I'm not aware. But there's a difference between that awareness so you can make the global bigger decisions than it is the control of, of everybody and everything. Uh, let's move on to your chapter on risk. And, uh, you know, we all take risk. Uh, risk is an ever-present um, aspect of leadership. So what's your advice to leaders about taking risks? 
Well, you've got to get comfortable with some risk. And, um, you know, again, you come back to the football coaches, baseball coaches, if you expect to win every game, you're never going to take a risk. Um, you've got to take some risks. And uh, that's where these rewards come of really capturing God's very best is when you get comfortable with the level of risk. And one way to get comfortable with risk is to look backwards, not look forwards. So we tend to look forward and we go, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. Look back and look at the last year. What did God do in your ministry, in your life, your, your school, your organization, university that you didn't plan? What did God do that brought you through that? So that's one way to look at it. What did God do? The other thing is when we look ahead at the risks ahead, you know, the risks ahead look an awful lot like the things we've come through in the past. And when we look backwards and we see how God has brought us through times of challenge and difficulty in the past, we can trust him for more in the future. So I think it is a theological, I think it's a a spiritual, it's a corporate culture uh, concept. But getting comfortable with this risk to know everything will not always work. I mean, there there are risks in in lots of the things that we do and we take on as opportunities. Um, And again, every one of them doesn't work out and that's okay. Uh, And we're comfortable with that risk as well to know sometimes it's going to, to, to not work out. But, you know, the church has a real problem with moving fast enough to even take a risk. I I, I talked some in the book about we've got this DNA of a sloth. You know, if you snuck up on a sloth and scared it, it still couldn't move. It couldn't jump. It doesn't have the DNA to do it. And in the church, we've got this DNA that's so slow and it's a DNA of fear and it's a DNA of we're comfortable with what we have, even though it's mediocre. It's a DNA of we're intimidated by what others have. So this image intimidation kind of looms out there and it's a DNA of assumptions that we can't do this or we must do that or whatever it may be. We've got to deal with some of these core issues that keep us from being so slow in order to get past to the, the, um, the fear of risk and be get more comfortable with, I don't think you ever have to totally not fear risk. I think that's reckless. You've got to realize there are risks in what you do. You just got to get more comfortable with it. So compare your current board in terms of risk tolerance with your first board, your first year as a president. Um, I presume that they're more risk tolerant than your first board. Is that a fair assessment? (laughs) They would be much more risk tolerant, although I think I've got eight members who've been with me all 27 years um, uh, out of 30 members on the board, which is pretty good. Um, So it's been a growing for all of us together. But yeah, I remember when I first came to Bellhaven, I couldn't spend more than 25,000 without approval from the board. And um, now I, I, uh, you know, we, we have a we have a comfort uh, understanding of uh, I, I sense what they are what I sense where I need to go to them and when I don't and and there's a high high level of trust now in all these 27 years with my board we've never had a divided vote on one thing ever and uh, part of the reason is because we sense objection when we sense caution. We do slow down and we wait and we wait for that log jam to clear. And in doing so, we've been able to keep the board very high level of trust between the board and administration because we do listen carefully to each other. Uh, Roger, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who I don't quote very often, once said uh, that consensus is the death of leadership. And what you just described, that you've never had a negative, single negative vote, 
how do I square, how do you square those two ideas that you move fast? Because you said speed wins, but then you have to have unanimity, uh, almost Quaker-like consensus. Uh, wrap that up for me. Help me. With yeah, I, I think it comes down to how my board has evolved, that my board would make very few decisions um, except a major policy issue. So when we first went to China, they made a decision, yes, we were going to do that, and here's the reasons why. But when we added the doctor business administration, I just reported to them what we did it. We did that wasn't a board decision. So um, major policy shifts um, uh, they would handle, and part of that is is really protection of the mission. So they're involved in tenure approval of faculty. Uh, they're involved in things that shape our mission more than they are day to day operations in any way. So yeah, it's a little bit different board, but you know again. Long-term president, long-term board, it's a different scenario. Probably not transferable to another setting. Uh, well, could be, but over time, I think you're yeah. right. So we've, we've praised risk, I mean, and I, and I praise risk too. The, you, you, you briefly alluded to the, to the risks of risk or the downside, and you don't want, you don't want to bet the farm. You don't want the, the ministry to go off the rails. So what advice do you have in terms of putting checks and balances on taking, not taking bad risks? Yeah, I, I, uh, wise people around you, um, you know, uh, having people who can be those points of balance. Uh, you know, I, I always talk about ideas before we do them. And and I think that's one thing different in this model of leadership. I'm talking about things as they're being considered, not after they're decided. And so often within an organization, we wait for the CEO to make the decision, to announce the decision, and then we then we give our complaints or our applause for it. We do it the other way around. We talk about it as we're going along, as we're considering so, something. So, so no surprises. You No surprises. And yeah. in fact, I, I know who the people are who might object to one issue or another, and I purposely go to them. And what I found is you'll always have critics. So what I find is if you go to the critics before the decision, their teeth aren't quite as sharp as they are after the decision. And so... But I find in those critics, there's usually wisdom that I want to hear. Why are they cautious? Why are they nervous about something? What, what's, what, what's the underlying tone? And it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to do something different. But we're going to learn something from them. So I keep people around who, are, who I listen to. I go to people who might be critics. And then I find that, you know, I tend to be pretty optimistic about life. And I tend to be very grace oriented. And of course, Jesus was the perfect model of, of law and grace. And none of us are that. So I keep people around me who I know are a little stronger on the law than I am. I keep people around me who are not quite as optimistic as I am. And I listen to them. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to push on something when I feel like it's right. And uh, uh, so it's it's a balance. And I think it all fits for each of us within our own style, within the own culture, within the people who are there. And, you know, I've got a senior leadership team who's been with me a long time. And um, when we have had openings, we're extremely careful in how we fill them. And I think that helps a lot. And they're, they're all utility players. I could walk in today and say, we're going to go I got this opportunity. We're going to go do this. And it upsets everybody's work plan, and they wouldn't even flinch. They just pick up and they go do it. That's pretty remarkable. Let's shift gears to uh, celebrating failure. You kind of alluded to it briefly earlier that sometimes mistakes with opportunity taking leadership in that direction 
Um, how do you give me? Can, can you, first of all, what's the idea of celebrating failure, and can you give an, us an example of when you've done that? Well, you know, as an educator, all of us the the things we learn best are the things we failed at, and uh, the, the the things you you missed on the test are the ones that really get ingrained in your mind and you never forget again. So failure is a good thing, but if we're not if we're not failing, it means we're not innovating, we're not stretching. We're not really expanding what we're doing. We're doing what we know we can do, where we know we can hit the targets. Um, so I think we want to encourage failure because without that, we don't get this innovation. We don't get this expansion. It doesn't mean all good ideas are good ideas. There are a lot of stupid ideas people bring forward, and that's okay, you know. And and sometimes you got to tactfully tell them, yeah, we're not going to do that. That's it's nice, but but don't discourage them. Help them. They encourage. So I think it. It's, it's that piece of it that we want to find expansion, innovation. But the other piece is failure won't hurt us as much as we think it will. As CEOs, we're scared to death there's going to be a failure down the, down the line somewhere, and somehow it's going to be a big, horrible thing. And it usually isn't. It usually isn't. Um, we can absorb a lot more of that than, than we think we, we could. I, I had a science building I was going to build number of years ago and we set out on a campaign and we got two years into that campaign and it just wasn't going. It was a failure and we backed off and I went to the board and said, you know, the time is not right and the spirit, it's just not working. And we stopped that campaign and within the next year, our old main building got hit. The building had to come down. Long story about how it got rebuilt into a science building. And now our STEMS programs are our largest programs on campus, all in God's good timing. Um, and, and good ways. So failures are not a, a horrible thing. They discourage us. But again, we don't have to win every time. If God's in charge, you know, it's his reputation on the line, not mine. Um, and so as long as we're obedient to him, if he's got something and it's not going to work, he's got another reason for it. Isn't it interesting in the, in the parable of the 10 talents that the, the one who buries his talent is the one who's criticized because he doesn't take a risk, right? Right, And, right. and he, he's afraid of failure. He's got a yep. harsh master. So Jesus's criticism is not a failure. It's a, if it's a lack of courage, it's, it's not trying at all. Right, right, exactly. And, and it's, it's this, you know, and, and I think that's part of what planning does. It kind of buries our talents into what we know we can do. And yeah, nice little incremental growth and nice charts that kind of move up in a positive way, make people feel good, but we're really burying our talent. I think that's a great way to put it. I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. That's really insightful. You have a, you have a great quote, and uh, it's not one that in Seattle we use very often. Too many leaders l- live like long-tailed cat in a rocking chair factory. Okay, that, that feels like a Southernism to me, and I say that as a compliment because I love it. Uh, can you unpack what that means? <laughs> yeah, in the South, we have to have a story or analogy for everything. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, a cat in a long-tailed rocking chair factory is a cat that's been hurt too many times because he didn't know when the, when the rocker was going to come down on his tail. And so he just cowers. He's anxious about everything. He's afraid to move, um, trying to anticipate the cost benefit of every little move because you never know when you're going to get hurt again. So it becomes protective rather than productive. 
And that's really the difference. And um, I think so often that's what planning does to us. We, we, if we put out these plans, and, and first of all, we put out the plan, and we rarely report back on how the plan actually came out five years later. But even when we do, we're scared to death that there's a failure in there, and so we don't ever want to show a failure. Somehow we've let God down if we have a failure. And no, not true at all. We just got to trust God for it and not be scared like a long-tailed cat in a rocking chair factory where we can't move because we've been hurt before and we don't want to get hurt again. That's, that's just a funny image. It's just so anyway, it's, it's very graphic. So my last question, then I'm going to let you have the final word after this question. You compare 747 pilots with jet pilots. Um, is that kind of like your sailboat and your motorboat or is it a different idea? Well, it's a little different in that in that I think it's the difference between between uh, uh, this kind of opportunity and long range planning. In long range planning, it's kind of like getting that jumbo jet off the ground. There's all this energy and there's all this effort and there's all this prep work that goes into pushing that huge jet up off the ground. Once it takes off, it kind of goes on autopilot. Everybody kind of forgets the planning thing. We just kind of go back to doing our thing. And then if there's a CEO change in the process, that plan goes on the shelf anyway, and a new one comes in and starts the whole thing off again. But it's just kind of an autopilot kind of a journey where, um, where, Opportunity leadership is much more like a fighter pilot who takes off and there's constant attention, demands, adjustments, you're moving, you're, 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 you know, taking off is probably the most predictable part of that flight for a, for a fighter pilot. Um, it's everything else after that. And, um, and so I think it is, is a little bit of a different analogy in that, um, you know, we can get so comfortable in this planning thing and feel like we're productive, but it's not changing our ministries. It's not moving the organization forward. It's, it's going through the motions of a lot of empty productivity. We need to start, stop that planning and start really leading. Well, we're wrapping up here, Rogers. Or a question you wish I had asked that I didn't, or or in the alternative, is there anything you want to you want to put a bow on this and wrap it up? Well, you know, I, I think probably the bow is is um, the scripture from Isaiah. You know, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, and my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think so often we think we have the mind of God because we're committed and we study and we follow. But what he's got in mind for us is so much more than what we could ever imagine. And it's so fun to just enjoy life where you see him leading. And it's not dependent on us. It is completely dependent on him. And that's why I've enjoyed so much these last 20 years of doing this and writing the book to kind of get it uh, down in a way that might be helpful to others. Well, Roger, thank you so much on behalf of Wheaton College. And uh, we really appreciate it. It's been a great time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alec.